This is an inexact science. My name is Lisa Cantrell. Here we go. I was teaching medical students as well as undergraduates, and one of the films that was being shown at the, in those days to the medical students was a film from, I believe, Norway, which dealt with sexual responses in females. How big do they usually get? About 50 to 60 grams is full size. They could fit in the palm of my hand. <laughs> there we go, we got one. And they had a woman in that film. Her face was discreetly covered, but you could see her breasts. And she was self-stimulating to orgasm. And she happened to be lactating. Oh my god. You can god. see them right now. They're oh. actually all nursing right now. They're attached to her nipples. And the female will actually drag them around. So at the time that she reached orgasm, she ejected milk. It was very clear, sort of. Um, like a little fountain coming up from the breasts in the movie. Should I put some booties yes, on my so feet? We're put okay. Booties on your feet. So there is this kind of quirky animal that researchers across the country have been studying for the past 40 years. They're, just, they're like really skittish. They're mm -hmm. still mostly wild. And this animal actually has a lot in common with humans. As we walk in, will one of you describe what just what is happening in here? There is in fact a lab in Davis, California, where I live and work. So there's two of them in them. Okay. That studies the animal. They're very furry. Uh, they've got dark black beady eyes and small ears. They're kind of a brown color with almost blonde tips. And researchers there were kind enough to let me see these animals. My name is Trent Simmons. I'm Adele Selkie. These guys, their species name is Microtus ochergaster. It is the prairie vole. So these voles are descendants of animals from um, but they're from Illinois. And this rodent is odd. First, it's really, really small. A little bit bigger than mice. About 50 to 60 grams is full-sized. Which is very different from humans, obviously. They could fit in the palm of my hand. They're about the size of two marshmallows stuck together. Oh my You can God. see them right now. They're actually all nursing right now. So the voles that we're looking at are small rodents. But the striking part of this animal is that it is monogamous. This is a male and a female that are housed together. Whoa. And you can see the female goes right next to the male. And they're just hanging out together. These guys have, they've bonded. They've mated and now they're, they're going to be pair bonded for life. Prairie voles spend their entire lives with one partner, nesting with that partner, raising young with that partner. And often when one vole in a lifelong pair dies, the other will show signs of grief and stress and may in some cases never pair bond to another vole again, living the rest of his or her life alone. This is really weird because monogamy in mammals is pretty rare. Most mammals display strong attachments towards their offspring, maternal love, mother-child bond, call it what you want, but that kind of attachment makes sense. Evolutionarily speaking, if we want our genetics to be passed on, we have to care for our young to make sure that our genes make it to the next generation. However, it has seemed less clear why an animal would show these same kinds of affinities, attachments, and bonds to their mates, to an animal that is not their own flesh and blood. In fact, it doesn't happen that often in nature. 
Only 3 to 5% of mammals show this kind of attachment to their mating partners. The typical reproductive model is this. Most animals mate with a partner, then immediately forget that partner. Females will do everything possible to make sure their offspring survive to reproductive age, and males will simply mate with as many females as possible. So pairing off and showing any preference for your partner is an oddity, a strange quirk that has fascinated researchers. And we as humans are a part of this oddity. We have probably been one of the biggest mysteries to ourselves. Because not only do we also display this kind of attachment to a partner, we have direct experience with the feeling that accompanies it. We know how intense that feeling can be. It's a kind of insanity and obsession, <laughs> and we call it romantic love. Yeah, I could just, just tell. Stop thinking you know, about her. Piercing blue there eyes. There were things about Juliet. Really smart and funny. And just and the way engaging. that she thought about thinking, things. Like, oh, I'm done it for. It is primordial. I turn around after seeing primordial. Them, kisses me. And it, just it's like, just like, like it is not over. dependent on characteristics. Yeah, it was, it was that whole like I feel like I've known you forever. Totally love. It is that insane feeling that makes you want to stay up all night with another person. It drives us to write poetry, music, make art. It is one of the most all-consuming emotions known to our species. We live for it. We die for it. And according to surveys, it is a universal feeling. It exists across cultures. Why does it happen to us? Some have proposed that in some species, and especially in humans, Caring for the offspring is such a daunting task that a baby actually benefits and its survival is increased if it has two parents, one to nurse and feed and one to maybe forage for food and defend. This might be especially true for humans because our infants by far are the most vulnerable and helpless of all infant mammals and they require an inordinate amount of care in the first couple of years of life. So having two parents might be adaptive. And having some kind of overwhelming attachment between those two parents might be evolution's trick to make two mating partners stay together to keep that baby alive. I'm going to go ahead and get something out of the way here. I in no way believe that love is something that only happens between a male and a female who are going to have a baby. My feelings, in fact, could not be farther from that opinion. But what we're talking about in this case is trying to understand how feelings of attachment, of love, for any partner may have arisen in our species. What makes us love? Where does that feeling, that euphoric rush of ecstasy we feel when we're falling in love, come from? And then, why does it sometimes go away? And what's more, why do we stay with our partners for so long, even after, potentially, we no longer have that feeling of ecstasy? These questions were, in fact, somewhat of a mystery up until the 70s. And one of the researchers who cracked this mystery wide open was Sue Carter. My name is Sue Carter. I'm the director of the Kenzie Institute. Sue and her colleague, Lil Getz, were actually the first to discover that the prairie vole was monogamous. And I should point out that the voles are not sexually monogamous. To my dismay and considerable disappointment, they would go mate with a stranger. But they are socially monogamous, which is still really incredible. So they want to physically be with, huddle with, and live with one preferred mate of the opposite sex which at first was an idea that the scientific community was resistant to. No one believed us. So there was a 10-year period in the beginning from the 70s through the 80s when everything we did was considered, in quotes, controversial or simply wrong. How did they figure this out? 
Both Lowell and Sue were researchers working in Illinois at the time. And Lowell had grown up in the Midwest and was pretty familiar with prairie voles. And he had seen families living under the straw bales in his father's fields. Lowell was a mammologist, so he would go out into the field and catch animals to study. And he noticed something odd about the prairie voles. It appeared that they were consistently getting caught in these traps in the same pairs. So the same two voles would always get trapped together, which is what made him suspect that maybe, just maybe, they each had their little buddy, their preferred partner, not too unlike humans. And he told Sue about this. I thought this was just an exceptional opportunity to, in the, what I knew was going to be the first time, ask the question, of what it is that causes animals, adult animals, to form attachments. So we began to move the animals into the laboratory and to study them. I am going to stop things right here and just say I love Sue Carter. Because not only is she insanely smart, but she did this thing that was creative and observant and that made her the maverick in the field that she was and still is. See, Sue already knew from other studies that maternal bonding, so a mother's attachment to her young, was in part due to a hormone called oxytocin. The first functions for oxytocin that were identified were birth and lactation. So oxytocin is released in the brain when a female gives birth. It's also released when a female breastfeeds. It's kind of this quirky little hormone that's released while a mother is doing mother things. And it's responsible in part for the kind of behavior we see mothers displaying towards their young, protecting them, hovering over them, caring for them. It was already known to be something of an attachment hormone from research conducted with sheep and mice. So Sue thought, you know, maybe this hormone is somehow playing a role in humans and voles' attachment to their mates, their social partners. And then a serendipitous moment when it all came together. I was teaching medical students as well as undergraduates. And the medical students had a course curriculum that involved a kind of desensitization to being exposed to sexual stimuli and nudity. And one of the films that was being shown at the, in those days to the medical students, and I didn't pick it out, was a film from, I believe, Norway, um, which dealt with sexual responses in females. Sue was watching this video of a woman essentially masturbating. The video was made by sex researchers. It was simply a film that was being used in sex education courses, especially for medical students. And she noticed something very odd about the woman, or, well, not odd if you knew what to look for. So at the time that she reached orgasm, she ejected milk. And it was very clear. It was like a little fountain coming out of her breast. I can remember the movie. I thought, wow, because it was sort of, it sort of focused in on her breast. And up like Mount Vesuvius was this milk. So the woman in this film was probably postpartum. She was lactating regularly. And if you notice what Sue noticed in the video, you might have thought, huh, that's kind of weird. Why would you suddenly have a surge of milk from your breast when you orgasm? But this made all the sense in the world to Sue. She thought, aha, there's the proof. I know that oxytocin is what pushes milk out of a woman. Therefore, orgasm must somehow be involved in a rush of oxytocin in the body. And thus, oxytocin may be involved in our attachment with our sexual partners. And it was from that that I deduced that oxytocin had to be the magic that was causing the bond. And with this aha moment, the case was cracked wide open. Sue went into the lab and began to experiment with oxytocin and the prairie voles. 
And sure enough. What we found was exactly what was predicted. If you gave extra oxytocin, they pair bonded faster. If you blocked oxytocin, they did not have a social preference. So here's what they would do. They would let a vole, a female prairie vole, for example, hang out with a male vole for a bit, not copulate, just hang out. And they would take that female vole, inject it with oxytocin, and put her back with the male. They did the same thing with other voles, but instead of oxytocin, they just gave them a placebo. The prairie voles that got an injection of oxytocin formed a bond with a partner faster than voles who were just given a placebo or voles that were given nothing at all. Likewise, if you blocked oxytocin in the prairie voles, they would not form bonds, like they wouldn't get attached to an opposite sex partner the way they typically do in the wild. And the speculation is that these voles, like humans, release oxytocin to particular parts of the brain that are crucial for bonding when they mate. So one possibility is that in the wild, a prairie vole mates possibly at random with another prairie vole. Oxytocin is released and bam, they become pair bonded. We are not 100% sure this is exactly how it happens, and we know that there are other neurochemicals involved, but it seems likely that this is somewhat accurate given what we know. And this hormone appears to also be playing a role in our human attachment to partners, possibly explaining to some degree Smart. how it is that we love. Yeah, I thought you were like the most intelligent person I'd ever met. Our species met. name is like, Microtus <laughs> overgas. They could fit in the palm of my hand. <laughs> you know, piercing blue eyes. There we go. And They're very furry. I just remember thinking like, oh, I'm done for. Like, totally in love. So what is oxytocin doing? This is Larry Young. I'm the director of the Center for Translational Social Neuroscience at Yerkes National Primate Research Center. I'm also the author of the book called The Chemistry Between Us. Larry is an expert on oxytocin, and he also studies prairie voles. He told me that oxytocin has been studied in humans. So you can actually give humans oxytocin in a nasal spray. You just spray it directly to their brain through their nose. And doing this, researchers have found that people will display positive social behavior. They will, for example, look more at the eyes of another person after being given oxytocin. They will also, and I love this finding, they will act more positively in a confrontational situation with their romantic partner after being given oxytocin. Further, we know that there are variations among humans in the oxytocin receptor gene. In humans, and variation in that gene creates variation in relationship quality. Larry says that oxytocin is not actually making us want to be with another person. It's really in making the brain pay attention to social cues. And not just any social, social cue, positive social cues. So the brain on oxytocin is more likely to notice, encode, and remember positive aspects of a social partner. And he told me about a really cool study that supports this idea and may help to explain some aspects of romantic love. Uh, another study that came out more recently from Rene Herleman's lab in Germany, he administered oxytocin to men intranasally. So Rene Herleman and is he a researcher in Germany. And in this study, he would give men either oxytocin or a placebo. And he asked them to look at pictures of either their partner or a novel female who was rated to be equally attractive. What as the, the researchers found is that friend. all men will typically rate their own partner as being as attractive, if not more attractive, than the picture of the female that is not their partner. However, when men were given oxytocin first, they rated their own partners even more attractive relative to the other female. 
In other words, the difference between how attractive your partner is in comparison to some other female is bigger when you are on oxytocin. So it selectively enhanced the attractiveness of their partner, but it did not affect how they rated other females. Like your brain on oxytocin thinks that your partner is absolutely the most attractive of all. This is interesting. We know oxytocin is released during orgasm and can be released simply with touch, and it seems very possible that these methods of oxytocin release play a role in some small way of making us attach more and more to our romantic partners making us see them in more positive ways, dare I go as far as to say making us love. It's this weird system that may have evolved in mammals for maternal bonding, but was somehow somewhere along the way co-opted for attachments to mating partners. And Larry actually has another interesting hypothesis about the role this hormone has played in shaping our human sexuality. It's a bit of a tangent, but I cannot possibly leave this out because it is so fascinating. There's a funny thing about human anatomy uh, that's different from all other primates, for example. There's actually two kind of unique things about human anatomy. First, the penis on a human male is much larger than the penis on other primates. The gorilla erect penis is something like one and a half inches long. So clearly primates don't need a large penis to reproduce. A small one will do the job just fine. The other quirk in humans is the enlarged female breast of our species and our fascination with them. In all other mammal species, the breast serves one purpose. It's used to provide nutrient to the offspring. But in humans, the breasts have become a sexually attractive feature. Before Larry could describe how these features play a role in our human bonding and attachment, he backed up and told me a story about sheep. I should also say that ever since Larry told me this particular story, I have not shut up about it. It is like my new favorite party trick to tell this weird science story to everyone. But I'll let Larry tell it this time. There's an interesting story. It's been seems to have been known um, for a very long time by shepherds um, that one way to get a mother to adopt a lamb was through manual vaginal cervical stimulation, sort of mimicking what happens when she gives birth. Now, how they discovered that, that's lost in history. But... Um, that story was the motivation for the work done by Keith Kendrick and Barry Caverne looking in sheep, uh, where they actually said, okay, there's this story. You know, is it true? They found that if they took a sheep that was not pregnant, um, a female sheep, and they used, they actually went to a sex shop and got a sex toy um, and use that to, to manually stimulate the vaginal cervical area to mimic what happens when she gives birth, they found that, indeed, that mother would adopt the lamb that was in front of her when they did that. They then went on and, and measured chemical changes in the brain and found that that vaginal cervical stimulation was causing oxytocin release in the brain. So remember, we already knew that oxytocin was released during birth in many mammals, but what these researchers essentially discovered, thanks to a weird shepherd's trick, was that vaginal stimulation itself can release oxytocin. You don't have to actually give birth to have it happen in a female. 
And Larry thinks that one possibility for why males in our species have evolved large penises is to stimulate the female more during sexual intercourse, causing a greater release of oxytocin. And the whole fascination with breast, possibly the same thing is happening there. Oxytocin is released by nipple stimulation. Remember, females get a dose of oxytocin to the brain during nursing as well. So basically, oxytocin is getting released potentially when the breast is stimulated. So when we have sex, we're not only providing vaginal cervical stimulation, we're also providing breast stimulation, nipple stimulation. Exactly the two things that occurs in a mother when she gives birth and nursing. So I think that human sexuality has evolved to recapitulate the stimulation that occurs in a mother to maximally release these chemicals in the brain, where in a mother would help the mother bond with the baby, but in romantic lovers would help each other to bond with each other. This is all total speculation. It's a hypothesis Larry has suggested. I just want to make that really clear. But it's an interesting one to think about, that our unique sexual nature as humans may make sense given the pressures placed on our species, the need for pair bonding to ensure survival of our offspring. And going back to that study that Larry was talking about earlier, the one where the researchers gave men oxytocin to the nose, those men found their partners to be insanely attractive. This is interesting because if oxytocin is doing something similar in women, well, during sex, oxytocin is released and may cause females also to be looking at that male partner, finding him more and more attractive, irresistible, and then the plot thickens. Because researchers who conducted that study, they found that oxytocin appears to be acting on a particular part of the brain while this is all going on. When the men were given oxytocin and they looked at their partner, there was an increase in activation in an area called the nucleus accumbens. And oh my god, this is where it starts to get really, really good. So let's back up a second. We already know from a lot of research that the nucleus accumbens is a part of something we call the reward motivation system in the brain. It is, in fact, the part of the brain that's responsible for addiction. This is where cocaine acts. And prior to the study, we had some hints that a human's brain in love looks kind of like an addicted brain. Back before René Herleman conducted his experiment, there was an even more foundational study in the early 2000s. It was a study published in 2005 that made waves, and it was conducted by Art Aaron and Helen Fisher. So I'm Arthur Aaron. Art is a researcher at Stony Brook, and he's conducted numerous studies looking at our romantic relationships. And the question that he had with Helen Fisher and their collaborators in this 2005 study was simple. What does a person's brain look like when they are intensely and madly in love? Uh, What we did was we recruited people who said they had recently fallen in love, mostly students, uh, in the last few months and that were still intensely in love. Uh, We had them provide us photographs of the person they're in love with and also photographs of someone else they know of the same age and sex as their partner. Basically, Uh, Art and his colleagues had people get into a brain scanner and look at pictures of the person they were madly in love with, as well as pictures of other people they weren't in love with but who were familiar and equally attractive. Very similar to René Herleman's study. And in Art's study, they found that another area, the ventral tegmentum, was activated when the people looked at pictures of their partner. The more in love you reported yourself being on a self-report questionnaire, the stronger this effect. And get this, it turns out that actually the reward motivation system, the system that addiction acts on, it's made up of three main brain regions. The nucleus accumbens, 
the ventral tegmentum and the frontal cortex. So here we now have evidence of two key areas of this system being activated in people who are in love. Renee's study showed that oxytocin was hitting the nucleus accumbens, and then Art's study showed activation in the ventral tegmentum. So it seems that that pair bonding in love shares a lot of common underlying neurochemistry and neural circuitry with addiction. What we know in terms of the brain and love is this. When we are in love, our brain's reward and motivation system is activated, which is the same system that is activated when we are addicted and obsessed. The system runs off of dopamine. There's a release of dopamine into areas like the nucleus accumbens. So the dopamine gives you the exhilaration feeling, the excitement. Then there are opiates that are also, at least in prairie voles, essential to pair bonding. The opiates give you the pleasure. And then, yes, finally, lest we forget, the oxytocin. Which is what makes your brain transmit the information of the partner to the reward system. So there is a cocktail of chemicals that are being released, namely dopamine, opiates, and oxytocin. The opiates and dopamine are acting to give pleasure and to activate that reward motivation system. And oxytocin is linking that reward to the social cues. At least this is what we think is happening. it would seem that we have it all figured out then. Our brains somehow get rewarded through some feeling or something. We like that reward, so we encode the social stimuli that are associated with that reward, which is in essence all the things about that person that we love, the way they look, the way they smell. One explanation for all of this is that sex is in fact the thing that is the reward. It, it could be the primary reward the one that is the most basic and biological to us, and that it's sex that then becomes associated with this kind of secondary reward of seeing our partners. As tempting as it is to stop there and say that that's the explanation, I think all of us know that that just cannot be the case. Maybe in prairie voles it's what's happening. The opiate and dopamine release during sex combined with oxytocin could be wiring the brain to attach them to their partners, but in humans, it doesn't seem to be that simple. And Art Aaron says we actually are pretty sure that the drive for sex and our motivation in romantic love are not one and the same. We have some evidence of this through neuroimaging, but also we know that we can and frequently do fall in love in the absence of sex. Did you ever fall in love with anyone as a child? Informally, most people will say yes, they did. And we presume that it doesn't have much of a sexual component at five years old. This thing we call love, it still is somewhat of a mystery. We still don't totally understand why we can become addicted to another person in the absence of a tangible and obvious reward. We don't understand why it can happen in the absence of sex, I mean. If you've ever been in love, like really crazily in love, you know that it is this strange and deep feeling of connectedness. You simply feel that this person understands you. So in some sense, we do know what the reward is. It's that sensation of being understood, of being made to laugh, or feeling not alone with that person. 
But why I sense that that particular person is the one that understands me most, why that person is the one that makes me feel less alone, and not the person that was standing directly next to him at the bar where I met him, well, if you are a diehard romantic, you might say simply that there is truly something special about that single individual that you fell in love with, that he is your soulmate. No one else out there is like him. If you're a scientist, or maybe not even a scientist, but just a rationalist, you might be rolling your eyes. And if you listen closely, you might be able to hear me rolling my eyes through the microphone. I am of the opinion that I myself could fall in love with many different men. Not any man, but many men on the order of thousands, probably. And really, of those thousands of men that I could potentially fall for, which one I actually fall in love with probably has more to do with proximity and timing, whether I'm stressed when I meet him or feeling happy at that moment. And although there might be a cynical part of me that is leading me to say this, the part of me that has seen friends fall in love and fall out of love, get divorced, it's not totally my cynicism speaking here. Science tells us that circumstances somewhat beyond anything really having anything to do with the other person can make you feel attraction to him or her. Don said, there is this scary bridge near us. Art Aaron told me about a study that he and Don Dutton conducted in the 70s in Capilano Canyon Park, British Columbia, Canada. You walk over it, you're a little scared. So we came up with this idea. Art and Don had this idea, kind of a crazy idea, to see if this bridge could somehow make people fall in love. Now, we're not able to do systematic studies of randomly assigning people to fall in love. We haven't been able to do that yet. Okay, so maybe not make people actually fall in love, but to make people feel attraction for each other. When you are physiologically stirred up, you can feel all kinds of emotions according to what the circumstances suggest. And so we came up with this idea of having an attractive young woman stand in the middle of the bridge, and every time a man walked across of the appropriate age by himself, she would stop him and say, I'm doing a, a study of creativity in beautiful places. Would you mind filling out a little questionnaire? Okay, so the men first walk over this really scary bridge. Okay, it's a suspension bridge, really long, it's high off the ground. And when you walk across it, your heart really gets to pounding, your adrenaline is pumping. And as these men cross this bridge, this female is all like, hey, excuse me, can you fill out this survey? It's on something totally unrelated to the bridge or me. It's actually about creativity. And there's a little questionnaire. The questionnaire was a picture, and he was supposed to make up a little story of what's in the picture. Uh, and when he was done, she said, thank you very much. Uh, if you want to know more about the study, here's my uh, name and phone number. The researchers also had the female do the exact same thing over at another bridge in the same park, a bridge that was not scary, so it was a stable, low bridge, not long and high off the ground. And then they waited to see how many men called that attractive female later to follow up on the study. The number who phoned her on the scary bridge was much higher. Why would that happen? First, just to make something clear, Art and Don were using men's follow-up phone calls as a proxy for interest in that woman. And essentially, more men called asking for the woman if they had met her crossing over the really scary suspension bridge. Art and Don believe it's because when the men walked across the scary bridge, when their heart rate rose, when they had some adrenaline pumping through them, and then when they see this attractive woman, essentially what people do and what they think these men did is misattribute their bodily states. 
They think, oh, I must be having this rush of adrenaline because of how this person is making me feel. Or they probably didn't actually think that explicitly, but their brains kind of get these wires crossed and they accidentally over-attribute that mad rush of adrenaline feeling to the encounter with this woman. And somehow it gets encoded and remembered as, I liked that woman. So one obvious problem with this conclusion is that maybe the sample of men who called the woman were self-selecting. Maybe all the men that crossed that scary bridge were just risk takers. They chose to cross that bridge because they are wild and daring, and they also chose to call the woman for the same reason. Whereas all the men who crossed the non-scary bridge, they are just the non-risk takers at the park that day. They don't choose to cross scary bridges because it scares them, and they also usually just don't choose to call it women they don't know. Totally possible. Art and Don, being the careful researchers that they are, ran a control condition where they had the same woman approach men who also walked across the scary suspension bridge, but 10 minutes after they had crossed it. So that was long enough after to allow all that adrenaline to subside and for their heartbeat to go back to normal. And here's the kicker. Those men did not call the female as much. So it's not just the case that these men that were crossing that particular bridge are risk takers. It really appears that it has to do with the arousal state of the men when they met the woman. Even more compelling, it turns out that you can get this same effect doing anything really that gets your endorphins going. Since then, we and others have done lots of studies. You have someone run in place for 10 minutes and then wait a little while and they meet someone, you get this effect. So long as the person's reasonably attractive. So basically your physical arousal in the moment can make you find a person attractive. And you might be saying right now, right, but does that make you fall in love with someone? What does it really take to fall in love with another person? It takes, of course, a spark, but it takes an initial moment of willingness to see that person in a different light, to be open to that person. Think of all the hundreds of people you pass each day who could be a lover, possibly someone you, given the right interaction, might come to believe you cannot live without. And yet, you don't see them. You don't notice them. You never meet all those people. It takes crossing paths, being willing, and seeing willingness in the other person too. Art says actually that willingness and openness is one of the biggest factors in all of this. He has done some studies looking at the factors that correlate to falling in love. Of course, attractiveness of the other person is one of the factors. You don't typically fall for someone you don't think is reasonably physically attractive. However, the thing that I found most striking of the correlates to falling in love is this. There's this notion that playing hard to get should be a good thing. Research has shown, not from our lab, but others have shown, that playing hard to get doesn't help except if you play hard to get by other people. So the optimal thing is for this person you want to be attracted to you, to think it's hard for everyone else to get you, but for them, you like them and it'd be easy. But lots of studies show that if you believe this person likes you, you're more attracted to them. Yeah, the earliest studies were done by Elaine Hatfield, most recently by Eli Finkel. Uh, what Eli Finkel and his colleagues have done is these speed dating studies. And in the speed dating studies, the people who, after you met seven or eight people, the people who are consistently chosen as you want to get to know them again are people that you believe uh, like you, but did not want 
to like the other people. There is converging evidence for this idea. It's not just one or two studies that show this effect. Elaine Hatfield, who Art mentioned, she was one of the pioneers in this kind of romantic love surveying research, and she found this effect early on. And other people have gone on to find it again and again, including Art in his own surveys on people in love. You fall in love with a person who shows interest in you. Of course, there are probably lots of people who have shown interest in you that you didn't give the time of day to. But here we are talking about the likelihood of wanting to date someone given that you like, say, three people at the same time. So you have three potentials on the table who you're keeping an eye on. All other factors being equal, according to this research, you will fall in love with the person of those three who shows some initial indication of interest in you, and you will possibly just forget that the other two ever existed. And this thing about being highly desired by others. So notice Art said really what makes you fall for someone is that person's reciprocation and interest. And also, we tend to fall for someone if they also appear to be highly desired by other people. I want someone who everybody wants, but who doesn't want everyone else, and really just wants me. I spent some time talking about these ideas with a researcher at Indiana University, Peter Todd. He does all kinds of research in decision-making and preferences, and he's done these really elegant and interesting studies looking at our preferences in dating. The way he studies this is through speed dating. So he and his collaborators have had people get together and do actual speed dating events They video record these speed dating interactions and get a bunch of data on who liked who, who wanted a second date, who didn't like who, and who never wanted to see the other person again. And then you could go back and look to see whether there were signs or predictors of who was interested in whom. It turns out you can just watch these videos and know who's going to ask for another date. People can figure out from like 10 seconds of of interaction whether or not both parties are interested in each other. Peter and his graduate student Skylar Place had people come into the lab and watch these videos and they just asked the people to rate whether they thought that the people in the videos were interested or not. And we do that at about a 60% rate, so slightly above chance, but definitely uh, better than, than just guessing. So yes, People can actually tell just by watching short video clips whether two individuals like each other. The weird part of this is, first, the video clips were really short, like 10 seconds long. Second, the sound was turned off in these videos, so the people watching the videos couldn't hear what was being said. And what do you think, so what are the cues that you think people are using? Well, you could certainly imagine that it could be things like uh, the facial expressions of, of the people and are they smiling at each other and are they flipping their hair or something like that. Uh, but Carl Grammer has proposed that it could be just something even simpler like the, the motion energy, which is how much people are moving 
uh, if you just look at, at their overall body movement. Carl Grammer is a researcher at the University of Vienna, and he suggested that we might gauge others' interests just by straight up watching how much a person is moving, the sum of motion, what he called motion energy. We looked at this in, in our speed dating videos by blurring out all of the features of the people in the videos and showing these blurred, new blurred videos to, to observers and asking them, okay, how interested are these two people in each other? With, they couldn't see their faces, they couldn't see their gestures, they could just see that their bodies were, they were leaning in and out or moving around. And that was enough for them to still make uh, above chance judgments of if the two people are, are interested in each other. I mean, it is literally just like the sum of motion or something? Yeah. Well, and that's so, wild. you know, you're, you're looking at frame by frame and how how many pixels are changing from one frame to the next, basically, wow. is, is a way of, of looking at that, yeah. You could basically get a computer to make above chance judgments of whether a human is interested in another human by simply getting a reading on the number of pixels that are changing frame to frame in a scene, which is crazy. More movement means more likely to be interested. And we use this kind of information to inform ourselves about who is desirable. So remember what Art said earlier? We want to be with people who not only want us, but who are highly desired by others. Peter and Skyler have found this very same effect in their own studies. If a man sees another man interacting with a woman and he sees that that other man is, is interested in her, then that could be useful information for him to know that, that this woman could be interesting as, as a potential partner as well. And that is uh, a phenomenon that's known as mate-choice copying. And that's been seen in uh, many other species, so it's been found in, and studied in fish and birds and even insects. How do they know that we mate-choice copy? They took those videos of the speed dates and decided to show them to a separate group of people in their lab. Before all the videos, we show people photos of the, the speed daters that they're going to see and get them to rate how attractive might this person be uh, for a short-term relationship or a long-term relationship? So the people in the lab first rate the static photos of the speed daters of the opposite sex. They say, yeah, I would be interested in this person or no on a scale of 1 to, say, 10. Then they had those people watch the speed dating interactions. They watch these videos where they're actually seeing people engage in positive and negative interactions, and then we have them rate the attractiveness of those individuals again afterwards. These were all heterosexual people watching other heterosexual people on dates. And Peter and Skylar did a beautiful manipulation in this study. So they showed the people in the lab videos of interactions in which the opposite sex person was either in a positive interaction, a man being interested in a woman would be a positive interaction for the woman, or a negative interaction, which would be a woman in a speed date where the man was not showing interest. So the people in the study are watching these videos, and then they go back and they re-rate those people in the videos in terms of how interested they are in dating them. Further, and this is critical, Peter and Skylar implemented a beautiful control in this study. So they made sure that these ratings were not all skewed based on the actual attractiveness of a particular individual in the videos. 
So some men saw a particular woman, let's say speed dater female number seven, in a positive interaction on the video. But the other half of the men would see the same woman, speed dater female number seven, in a negative interaction. So the after video ratings couldn't all be based just on whether or not this woman is attractive. Any adjustments that were made to that rating, that re-rating, those differences had to be based on whether they saw her in a positive or negative interaction. And what Peter and Skyler found was that positive interactions made the people in the videos more appealing. When the speed dating interaction was one of interest, then people's, these observers' ratings of the suitability of, of that person as for a short-term or a long-term relationship actually would go up compared to when they saw that person not getting interest in, in the speed dating interaction. And so that was evidence for this kind of make-choice copying in humans, that if you actually see a couple interacting in a positive way, that can make the, the person that you might be interested in seem more interesting. It just seems all too simple. It can indeed be traced back to a flipping of the hair, a waving of the hands, like a peacock displaying his tail feathers, like a bird singing his song, or something even more subtle. But we are sending signals. And we pick up on the signals being put out by others in our species. We copy members of our species. We are more likely to follow suit when interest is reciprocated. And knowing when we ourselves might be interested is potentially easier explained than we might like. It could be as simple as using our bodily arousal to try to interpret attraction. It turns out that we are not that much different from all the other animals on the planet when it comes to how and who we choose as our mates. We may have a bigger frontal cortex that allows us to rationalize or try to interpret our behavior in a meta way, to write poetry about how it feels or to paint a picture to depict the phenomenology of it. But in the end, we may be controlled or at least shifted, moved ever so slightly at the very least by the landscape of very primal animal brains. We see the similarities between ourselves and other animals and how we select and how we love. I need to tell you one last thing. It would, I think, be a disservice to us all if I left this out. Very few of us spend our entire lives intensely in love. There are some people, but it's rare, which has always seemed kind of sad to me. The lucky ones simply stay happily committed in a long-term relationship, but that feeling that you first experienced with your partner, for most people, it changes. It goes away. Something else seems to replace it. Maybe a more stable, constant emotion, maybe security. But it is not the same ecstasy that once drove you to write poetry, paint pictures, stay up all night dancing and staring into your partner's eyes. Where does that feeling go? I don't think we totally have this part figured out. I mean the part about why that feeling leaves us. But why we frequently stay with our partners in spite of not having those same intense feelings, we do kind of know the answer to that. And it goes back to something we have learned from the prairie voles. So these guys, their species name is Microtus ochergaster. How, how big do they usually get? He had oh, seen families. They're very furry. Living under the straw bed. They could fit in the palm of my hand. He really <laughs> knew voles are that something interesting was descendants going on with this particular animals small rodent from, um, what, they're from Illinois? the prairie vole. 
prairie voles, first of all, will get really, really stressed out and show behavior that looks like depression if you take them away from their partner, which is so endearing and adorable and cute and in some ways a lesson in loyalty and commitment. And Larry Young told me that if you take a vole's partner away and you put that prairie vole in a big tub of water, the vole sometimes won't even try to swim to save itself. It basically just gives up and will drown as if life has stopped being worth living without his or her partner. So in short, there is an enormous amount of anxiety and stress and potentially depression for a prairie vole related to losing his or her partner. And Larry explained that neurochemically what is happening is this. There is a peptide called CRF. That regulates the stress axis. So it's normally secreted in the brain to activate systems that can create an aversive uh, feeling. CRF is responsible for setting in motion a cascade of effects that basically stresses an animal out. And here is a somewhat disturbing thing about the peptide and its production in the brains of prairie voles. Um, when they bond, they begin to synthesize more CRF, and that's held in the neurons. As voles begin their bonding with their partner, suddenly the brain kicks up production of the stress peptide. The voles don't feel stress in that moment because the CRF is just produced like crazy and then stored in the neurons. It's just sitting there doing nothing at first. But when their partner is missing, then their, the neuron is chocked full of CRF and then it can release it. Basically, when the prairie vole senses something is wrong, like when their partner is missing, the CRF is suddenly triggered to be released from the neurons. And now, because of the crazy high production of CRF that occurred due to bonding, there is an insane amount of CRF that is present to be released in the brain. So forming a bond with a mate is kind of like loading a gun. There's a transformation that occurs when they form the bond that loads the gun, creates the CRF in certain parts of the brain so that it's ready to be released when the partner is gone. What this means is that the bond formation in prairie voles occurs because of the exhilaration of opiates and dopamine. That pleasure that happens because of opiates, however, is not maintained in the animals forever. Rather, it appears that their lifelong bonds may be out of avoidance of stress. Because once bonded, leaving their partner would mean pulling the trigger on the CRF stress peptide. I actually think this is something that could potentially be freeing for us to know. It seems possible that if we are anything like prairie voles at all in our mate bonding, that we may stay with our partners once we are attached to them, not because we continually and actively feel some insane, maddening love forever, but rather because the stress involved in leaving that person would be unbearable. I will not overinterpret this information for you. I just want it to be out there for people. I don't think that this means that we don't love someone after years of marriage or after decades of being in a committed relationship. However, on the flip side, I think this information for me has made me rethink the whole idea that being in love with someone is the best factor in choosing a mate. I think this information is helpful for us to understand that our love can change on a very chemical level and how that can be okay and potentially just the natural path. But it also means that this is not magic. I sincerely believe that fully understanding the science behind what we perceive to be our most visceral emotions can potentially free us.
Thank you to Peter Todd, Larry Young, Arthur Aaron, and Sue Carter for contributing to this episode. Thank you also to Adele Selkie and Trent Simmons for showing me around their Vol lab at UC Davis. A special thank you to Sarah Allen, who recently got married to the love of her life, the beautiful Don Watson. All the music you heard came from Shannon Hayden. Opening and closing music is, as usual, Follies. And Inexact Science is funded in part by a small grant from the Association for Psychological Sciences. And hey guys, guess what? We have a new website. It is an inexactscience.com. It's awesome and beautiful, and I will be posting episodes there from now on, along with some sciencey information. And as always, if you liked this episode, pass it on to someone. Just send them an email with a link to this episode or tweet it on Twitter to all your followers, post it on Facebook. If you're listening for the first time, go to iTunes and subscribe. Also, leave a review there. I'm hoping to apply for more funding to continue this podcast, and that depends in part on increasing the audience. So please do pass it on.